We are encountering silence. Encountering silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is part two of a multiple part interview. To hear part one, listen to last week's episode. You're, you're making me think of, of two, two points. And the first is a book I read a couple of years ago is by, by a team of British psychiatrists, I believe, psychologists. And the book was called The Buddha Pill. Basically, they were looking at the mindfulness movement, and I think they may have even extended into, into the TM world. I'm, I'm not sure. I can't remember. It's been several years since I read the book. But their concern was that you've taken these practices that were embedded in religious traditions, in ascetical traditions. You've pulled them out of that context and have kind of packaged them as a pill, you know, do this and you will be happier. Do this and you will be more effective at work. Do this and you will manage your blood pressure. And, and what they were... Managed blood pressure. Yes. Managed and, and corporations have brought in a mindfulness team and told them this, these practices, and groups do work better together. And then when colleagues work better together... Uh, at the end of the day, corporate profits go up. That's the point of it. You know, it, it does, it can. I mean, there's all sorts of research in, in, into these areas. Uh, and I'm not saying those are bad. It's just insufficient to get at the, the real. I, I feel it's like you're standing uh, in the beach in ankle-deep water and thinking, well, now I know the ocean. <laughs> yes. Yes. And and what what um, this book, the Buddha Pill, goes on to suggest. So it's not all rosy, but it goes on to suggest that some of these people, if they are actually put into intensive meditation experiences, such as a nine day retreat, a Zen retreat, or something like that, that because they haven't been properly well, vetted isn't the right word. Properly formed would be the word out of the Christian tradition. Because they haven't been properly formed, that those experiences can actually be quite terrifying. And that, that people experience a dissolution of ego, but they don't know what to do with that. And so suddenly what was touted as, here's how you manage depression, becomes actually a very kind of egoically terrifying experience. And as you say, these people who have this shingle that they got as a result of a weekend workshop, they're not equipped to deal with that. So it, it, it's, it's something that, that, yeah, I, I have some concern about, and I'm, I'm happy to see that people are interested in, in meditation, interested in silence, but I am concerned that what they're being given is a very stripped down model that in some ways might actually be dangerous. Mm. What would yeah. your thoughts be about that? Well, when a contemplative practice begins to deepen beyond what a 
you know, say, cognitive, meditation-based cognitive therapy. When you're ushered into a spiritual path by a spiritual discipline, you're going to meet aspects of yourself which you'd rather not see. Mm -hmm. And many people will get up and go and find out some, move to some other more entertaining discipline. Well, they'll just meet the same thing again <laughs> there. Um, but these are absolutely crucial, the, these inner uh, liberations, purifications, or, you know, to use uh, John of the Cross, these nights. And those are crucial to negotiate, to inhabit, because out of their... their out of them come wisdom, insight, not in even into oneself, one's self-knowledge, but the ab ability to feel other people's struggles, because you know what it's like. You've been on that wrestling mat for mm. years and years. Mm -hmm. With respect to, say, Zen, in Zen tradition, you really aren't allowed to at least the Zen lineage as I know, you're not allowed to uh, for a their standard retreat is a session, uh, which is a, a week long thing with long hours through the day combined with work and so forth, uh, is first an introductory one of a weekend, which is basically, you know, arriving on a Friday, Friday evening, all day Saturday and through Sunday morning. So you you wade in to the ocean before you're uh, thrown into uh, waters over your head. Mm -hmm. And and then the, the Zen uh, teacher would be able to uh, assess, you know, by how you handle this, should, should you uh, then proceed further, or maybe another uh, short one or a series. So, so all of these things which comprise what I, the, the depth tradition of these things, the corporatization, the market economy, they're uh, filtering out. And I think it gets back to the thing you say to your students, that there, there's a part of this where I can't grade and I cannot check the box to see how productive you are in, in any of those ways uh, that that the market would recognize or that the academy would recognize. There's no way of of having some kind of measurable there. And yet, that's exactly what the market wants, is to be able to, you mentioned, there's it, this will make you more productive because if we can get you to work together well on a team or like it will do those, those are side effects. That's lovely, but that's not the point. That, that, that is good. Right. It is leaving out. It's operating irrespective of the depth tradition out of which these come. And some of these people might not want it, you know, but, but <laughs> right. anyway, that, that is a, a problem. And I understand the problem in spiritual uh, centers, retreat centers, which offer these sorts of programs and certificates, uh, it's very difficult for retreat houses to run in the black. Right. That's right. And so you have lots of programs going on there. And the tradition of spiritual direction is an important one, but 
you can get the certificate before the grape juice is turned to wine. And there are a lot of inner wrestling, a lot of, well, what I call the uh, uh, time on the wrestling mat of ourselves, of our, of our, what we like to call our minds. Um, this opens up an inner eye of wisdom where one's own uh, suffering, one's own affliction is absolutely crucial to the sharpness of insight. I think you use a phrase in one of the things of uh, spiritual but not religious. That's a, that's a handy phrase. We all know what's, what's being got out there. But sometimes it's used as a sort of a merit badge. I'm spiritual, but not religious, you know. But uh, mm. <laughs> the, the fact is, these uh, depth dimensions of the uh, these practices and so forth, the wisdom, the depth dimension, is housed in the religious tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I have found in my own experience that people who are very well intended. Uh, and dedicated that when they stick with practice and get into these trials of facing themselves in a way they didn't expect, you know, people, example, people embarking on a contemplative path in hopes uh, because they hope that the contemplative path will help to them to avoid what any contemplative path will make you face. And I have found that people who have had absolutely nothing in their background, as far as it being immersed in a religious tradition, whether even if they have departed from it, they have some frames of reference of, you know, uh, pick up your cross and carry it or or some frames of reference of their periods of life that are just difficult and that the contemplative tradition is going to involve meeting those treacherous periods. Martin, I think Kevin and I are in such broad agreement with what you're saying here, the conversations he and I have had over the past several years, we've, we've often touched on this. And I, I'm reminded of the old uh, Quaker saying that it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. <laughs> and so, you know, rather than just talk about the defects of the mindfulness movement, which we could certainly talk about, but maybe the question becomes, how do we invite people who have found these kinds of corporate benefits, how do we invite them to give the tradition a more serious chance, especially when they've been wounded by shallow religion? And then I guess this is my theory, is that when religion, institutional religion, lost its contemplative heart, which, and we can argue, did that happen 200 years ago, 500 years ago? I mean, different... Different theorists have different timelines there. But, but I think we can all see how so much of what is, presents as religion in our culture has no contemplative heart. And so people really very sensibly turn away from that. 
Yeah. And they say, I, I, I really am not interested in the man on the television with the big hair asking me for money. <laughs> so they turn away from, from religion as they understand it. Yes. Have this kind of shallow experience of spirituality. And I'm, I'm, I don't mean to be pejorative because it may be a very meaningful opening up for them. Yeah. But the question is what they're missing is the contemplative heart of the tradition. The mm -hmm. tradition, as, as you've mentioned, that goes back to Evagrius and goes back to Climacus, the desert mothers and fathers, the great you know, teachers in the Western tradition, whether it's Bernard of Clairvaux, the Cloud of Unknowing, John of the Cross, Eckhart, Roisbrecht, you know, all the way down to, to you and Thomas Keating and Merton and Rohr and the people who are trying to, to present it to, to our generation. So how do we, without saying to people, oh, you're doing mindfulness, well, that's a waste of time. <laughs> how, how, how do we say, we're glad that you've tasted the waters of contemplation. Now come deeper. What, what can we say? Any thoughts? Well, uh, first of all, uh, what I mean by contemplative is ult ultimately overcoming the illusion of separation from God. And that illusion is, is sustained and maintained by inner noise in our head. And everything about our culture keeps our attention uh, riveted there. And that's nothing new. I mean, um, you know, as Evagrius says, these pictures run through our minds uh, for, and we run to watch them. You know, <laughs> it's a human condition, you know. But uh, overcoming the sense of illusion of separation from God God is the ground of our being, the closer to me than I am to myself. And what also is that we overcome the sense of a separate self and a deep intuition that we're all one. In deepest silence, the self is unselfed of self. And we perceive others not as objects, but as subjects. When uh, you are sitting in uh, silence and when things are ripe and ready, and we have no control over this, which is part of the problem, um, uh, we're, um, any sense of coralness falls away. Uh, now it doesn't show up on a CCTV camera. Huh? <laughs> But you don't, you begin then to be integrated into, the silence integrates you into it, and silence does not see an enemy. It unothers the other as threat. And this is, is one of its great relevancies to the more secular, contemporary, and important focus on a diversity inclusion. Mm -hmm. There's no way of pulling it off in the academy where it's all over is the worst place to have that discussion. But 
it is overcoming contemplation because you experience a person from within, so to speak. And, and this is where, you know, language, uh, 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 people who, who aren't on the same wavelength think, whoa, you're some sort of absolute nutcase. What it is, is you're becoming normal. As normal as it is for a tulip bulb to blossom into a tulip. Uh, but if, if, if you're only a bulb, you, I mean, you know, you don't know what's inside of you, what's particularly normal. This is lovely. And I wonder, is this connect with what you talk about in your recent book, this kind of exploration of three, the development of the mind, three, uh, uh, you know, kind of almost a, an exploration of three aspects of mind that you lay out in, in your most recent book? Is, is that kind of what you're talking about here? Well, yes, um, I did that. Well, for one reason is I'm trying to get away from the dominance of talking about stages in the spiritual life, because that's then something to we've got to cross because, you know, it's something to acquire mm. and mm. something to keep ourselves as the center of our own contemplative project. What stage am I? And we really kind of promote ourselves to the highest possible, you know. <laughs> Which room of the castle am I in? Right. Uh, exactly. So trying to uh, do that, and uh, I have to tell you, after so when a sunlit absence came out, I got I got some feedback, uh, people. What happened to the doorways? That that you know how I used. I wanted to use a biblical metaphor. Uh, also trying to get away from stages, but people then sort of, what door am I at? Mm. <laughs> what have I gone through? Have I gone through this? We are um, so hardwired that way for some reason. We, we, we are. We are. But it's that's only a, a certain level of mind, so to speak. But, you know, inner silence didn't care. And so in this, this uh, an ocean of light, I... Just wanted to that, that that you know these these mind states you know there is a certain fluidity, uh, and uh, and then just within those looking at the same themes what does uh, what does practice look like uh, what does ego look like what contemplative skills get to emerge and what are some special challenges and. You know, I call that re reactive, uh, and that's basically when, you know, we go through life, somebody like somebody uh, uh, in a phone booth, caught in a phone booth with a bee, uh, you know, just bam, 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 you know, and in calmer moments, there's a greater receptivity to what is as it happens to be. And those themes, four themes I mentioned, they they, they look uh, differently. But in the final cha chapter uh, section, the of luminous uh, mind, that it is. Oh, and the the also theme is 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 that these mind states, if you were, don't. Uh, uh, it is not a question of acquiring anything. If it's all there already, we don't have to one-click it. So it's a quite, I use the metaphor of decluttering. Mm. 
decluttering. And there is the floor, the ground, the luminous ground of being there. That was always there. It's simply decluttered, uh, cluttered due to, it's called the human condition, and it's running, you know, wild west because we, we, sometimes we form mental habits that, that add extra clutter. And the important thing with luminous mind is that something just simply opens up. But you can't try to open it up. Of course, this is what we try to do. And this is, this is the, the great poverty of decluttering. Because the need to acquire some uh, thing which will then have, uh, we can then think we can control, and that clutter goes. And this flower of the mind or the light of the mind, and I think this is, is what, you know, Vipassana uh, the the uh, great mindfulness, which sees, which intuits profoundly the unity of all things, but not not separate from the beautiful particularity of all things. Mm. Even the particularity of things that are not so beautiful. And if you look straight into distracting thoughts... There is luminous, diaphanous as silence. Mm. They, they too are vehicles of the silence we seek. And this comes to the fore in, as practice, flowers, the flower of the mind. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in this 30 seconds of silence. There's one author, in fact, I think I just just to quote quote him, because one of the things that happens is you you're, you are no longer the center of your own contemplative project, huh? and, and uh, someone who speaks beautifully uh, to this is um, if you know Howard Howard uh, Thurman, Martin Luther King's great mentor and you know, fantastic preacher, theologian. He says, in that great, in that glorious and transcendent moment, it may easily seem to me that all there is, is God. I work at preparing my mind, my spirit, for the moment when God comes to himself in me. He's not the center of his own experience. When it happens, I experience presence 
when this experience becomes an object of thought and reflection, it is then that my mind creates dogmas, creeds, doctrines. These are the creations of the mind and are therefore always after the fact of the experience. But they are always out of date. The religious experience is always current, always fresh. In it, I hear his voice in my own tongue. And back to the question of what can we, we do is simply provide opportunities and places for people to come, but you can't make them come. Mm-hmm. And to support whatever they have. I think something that the Christian tradition needs uh, to do more of is, oper- is have uh, opportunities for longer periods. Um, now, Snowmass does this. They offer lengthier retreat uh, periods of uh, contemplative prayer or their branding, centering prayer, because some easier for some of these challenges to be met that come up when you're going into deeper uh, silence, the uh, purifications, confrontations with our own self-centeredness, our own murderous thoughts, our own shadow side. And there are many, many people attracted to it, but to the, the contemplative discipline, everyone, whatever name it goes by, but embark on it with the view that it will help them avoid these aspects of life that the contemplative life will throw in your face. It's not about you being blissed out. What what it makes me realize, I mean, I, I feel some humility in listening to you speak because I realize we have we have an entire infrastructure that needs to be reclaimed, if you will, uh, whether it's uh, supporting individuals who do have an aptitude for spiritual direction, mm-hmm. supporting them in their own formation. Yeah. So that they're not just good listeners. I mean, having a person who's a good listener is a blessing, but having a person who is a good listener who has themselves listened deeply to silence. Yes. In such a way as they, they, they know the difference between, they know that the map is not the territory mm-hmm. and they know the territory and also the map, but you know, you follow a map from here I am, you know, outside Philadelphia, here I am, you know, and I have a map, you know, into Philadelphia that I need, you know, of course, I can get my phone or somebody to talk about it, you know, that becomes the map. But anyway, it doesn't tell me that I'm going to run, uh, uh, run into a pothole, break my axle, get out of the car, ask for help, and that person mugs me. Right. And I am dealt with, left dealing with trauma. That's not on the map to Philadelphia. So it's the part of the territory in certain neighborhoods more than others. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
But th this is the thing, and, and people will memorize the map and memorize lots of, you know, uh, nice sounding spiritual sound bites. But they don't know the territory. Right, right. And you don't need a certificate. But we do need places of refuge, places to go and be silent. You, oh, mentioned, yeah. you mentioned Snowmass, Mepkin, Conyers. They're out there. And then you get into the whole question of, you know, not everybody can afford to take yeah. a couple of days off from work and drive 300 miles. And, you know, and, and I mean, and the monks are so generous, but they have to pay the light bill too. So they ask for a donation, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's you know, that's perfectly good because that also a person makes a commitment <laughs> mm -hmm. and in lots of places I've, I've been to, you know, will say, you know, um, student discounts or senior discounts or things like this. Um, if you can't, if money is the reason you can't come. So, so, and there are, there are places I've been to, gosh, uh, a, a number of them couldn't count them up over, over the years. And, uh, um, including San Quentin Prison and Folsom State Prison, which have been, I would say, the most, uh, some of the most moving encounters I have seen of, of, of men who realize this is it. They, they um, you know, they would opt in to come to the, a contemplative prayer group that's been going in each place for uh, many years. And I, I come in time to time to lead a day and uh oh many of them many of them know this well uh because they, for them it is their only hope they look to the left to the right too far forward too far backward and there's just despair i feel that this kind of gets at a little bit uh, one of the questions we often ask and i don't know we're here we are, we're talking about the fact that we need spaces for silence and maybe can't afford some people can't afford it. And then you cited Howard Thurman and the background there of his experience of kind of the racial tensions that he experienced and and uh, and now you're discussing kind of the prisoner who's who's uh, in prison. i'm I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about the idea? Because on, on this podcast, we talk about this, that there's kind of almost the shadow side of silence or kind of a negative form of silence in the sense of shaming, prejudice, racism, control, manip using silence to silence somebody. If you have any thoughts about that. Yes, I, I, I meet that during retreats when people realize sometimes for the first time uh, as things come up, uh, that in their own lives, as children, son, silence was used as punishment. Mm. Mm. And so they're afraid to go beyond. Huh? And, and some, sometimes the appropriate you know, thing is to refer. Sometimes they need a, a therapist or, or a, a listening ear mm -hmm. uh, can deal with uh, uh, abuse and so forth. And then we have... This, this silence of abuse on a grander scale, society, the churches, um, where it is, um, I mean, it shows up everywhere, but it's, 
it seems a bit more sinister when they show up in places where that presume you can trust. Right. And and that's uh, violated. Um, uh, Dearman McCullough, who wrote a very thick book on silence, this is based off his Gifford lectures, which is an academia. That's religion. That's a few. That's a Academy Award invitation. So right. That's a big deal. Right. Right. But, uh, very youthfully, he devotes um, uh, space to dealing with that. Those who are silenced because or dis, de, uh, defined out, told they don't count because of whatever reasons. They're not the right sexual orientation. They have too much melanin in their skin. They um, are from a, a culture which threatens me. And uh, yes, that, that, that's certainly toxic. And even, you know, just living with people, like living in, like live in community is a microcosm. It's no uh, oasis. I mean, I, I'm perfectly happy in my order, but, well, not perfect. But anyway, I'm... <laughs> getting at is it it is a microcosm of the rest of it's not an escape from anything Mm -hmm. enclosure is about exposure to humanity in its from sanctity to criminality or you know just just, it's a microcosm of the rest of the world and there's a silence of the cold shoulder in community whether the, you know, uh, and it takes place in monasteries, and it's very easy uh, because in monasteries they're very predictable places. You know where people, because of their role in the community, you 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 really know where everybody's going to be. And if you're into punishing somebody by not talking to them, of course, do they know they're even being punished by you? But anyway, you can avoid them. You know they come down this passage at about this time of the day, so you go down another one, or you hear you recognize footsteps. You don't, you know, you don't want to encounter them. Avoid. Huh? So, so it, it happens in our own daily routines, uh, and it happens in uh, societies. What what we do uh, to one another, and yes, silence. I wouldn't. I would call it a rather blaring silence, but it is, yes, the that that way of defining people out because they don't fit into a category. Uh, life itself is too wild to be tamed by the social constructs that we try to shoehorn it into, and it will always backfire. There will be therapeutic revolts that we see go, going going on in society, you know, in groups of people who will be silenced no more. It says they count. Right. And it perfectly, I mean, you know, from the Christian tradition, for Jesus, those whom society said didn't count, for Jesus, they count. And this this is how where contemplation is one of the most deeply therapeutic remedies for these social ills is because you do not see the other is unothered. 
even someone who wishes you harm, you see in them the silence of God. And this is, you know, awakened awareness. This is the flower of the mind. When the reactive mind is no longer behind the wheel of the car, and, and even uh, receptive mind is still has tight fists and being uh, opened to an open palm of receptivity and sensitivity. Palms are very sensitive. And so I think they clasp to protect. And but so to open a palm, which is required to shake a hand, requires a certain vulnerability, a very sensitive fleshy skin. I mean, that's all a metaphor. I mean, it's just no, a no, absolutely. But it's 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 a bullseye. It's a wonderful metaphor. Yeah, Father Martin, my final question for you would be. Where do you discern hope? Where do you have a sense of hope in terms of silence and how it is present in people's lives? Hope, I think you see in there is a widening awareness that this tradition, these traditions exist. There's hope in that the tremendous uh, thirst of people that and this will come if there's sort of a silent revolution <laughs> to if you come like most from the ground roots there are many people say say who are in the pews who know better i mean who know not to expect juice from the turnip of a paralytically boring preacher and and they know were to go to get nourishment and still be participating members of a church and have a more, they, they have done something very important by removing the, their projecting projection onto a priest or minister who doesn't know, you know, doesn't, is just himself doing the best he can. Uh, uh, so I see a great, a lot of hope in, in the, expanding familiarity and interest in this. And I don't see it ending. You see, you see the interest just growing and expanding? Yes. Well, that's quite a hopeful and, note. <laughs> and the hope uh, is how people, how to respond to it. How do you respond to this mystery of God who is already looking out your eyes. The desire to seek is a response to already having been touched. It's not like other desires to acquire. You know, I want to acquire an iPad. I want to acquire uh, this or that. There is obviously that dimension of desire, but, but this is a uh, uh, different. It's a, it's a, a response to having been touched. And so people look around and they might Google their way to uh, some helpful things and some that aren't helpful. But I think we have to have a certain trust that 
loving providence is at work. One of my the great refrains from students when they speak about themselves and some tragedy has happened in their lives, something that seems to be infallible is, is something that's said either by a parent or a grandparent. It's usually the mother or the grandmother. Uh, that things happen for a reason. And that's not a fatalism. What it's talking about, they're in the tangles of providence. There is hope, there is life. I just, I just want to thank you for your time and your expertise, and thank you for spending, you know, so generous with your time, spending so much time with us to talk about this topic. Uh, it was it just been an absolute pleasure. I'm just very grateful for the uh, lively, very interesting conversation. Uh, well, you, well, you are more than welcome. Thank, again, thank you for your work on behalf of silence, on behalf of the, the Christian spiritual tradition. And um, it's just been a real pleasure to speak with you today. We are encountering silence. I'm Kevin Johnson. To learn more about me, please visit kevinmichaeljohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. Find out about my work at carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. My website is cassidyhall.com. Please visit the podcast's website at EncounteringSilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on this podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit Patreon.com slash EncounteringSilence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters. Our circle of supporters help tremendously in sharing our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.